There was a fly bugging around here a few minutes ago, and I'm like, it's not time for that plague yet. <laughs> move on, move on. Hey, it's been pointed out to me that my teaching in this season has somewhat lacked the requisite puns that so many of you have gotten used to. And so for those of you who have truly missed such high-minded repartee, this morning we come to a riveting story, a truly unforgettable teaching, a story of when hip-hop came out of the mainstream. Ouch. (laughs) But hey, the applications here are for boys and for gills. Of course, that all depends on your level of commitment. Commitment. That's just too good. I know some of you are totally unamused. Total. Toad. I just hop and pray you won't tune this whole thing out. Get yourself a cup of coffee, maybe a Coca Cola, and uh, we're going to get knee deep into the teaching this morning. Exodus chapter 8, verse 1. He said, with a little pain, Exodus chapter eight, verse one, then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite your whole territory with frogs. The Nile will swarm with frogs, which will come up and go into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and on your people, and into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls. So the frogs will come up on you, and your people, and all your servants. Oh, Lord, you never cease to amaze us with your creativity. (laughs) What a remarkable God you are, and what you have to speak and say to us this morning is far beyond the puns and far beyond the humor and the silliness and and the things that we see. Even in this play, we think this is just so funny. And truly, Father, there are moments, I'm sure, that were, uh, were funny. There are to us, if we read back and look, there are things that uh, I, Lord, can I, can I say that croak us up? I shouldn't even say that in a prayer. But Father, Father, the truth is you did something remarkable. And as I said, Lord, as we began this service, when there is oppression, when there are plagues, things come to the surface. And I pray, Lord, that you will cause in this season of oppression, and we have all felt this heaviness, that you will bring things to the surface not so that we can be exposed, but so that those things can be exposed and washed away and cleaned out of our lives, that sin, which is often hidden in us, whether in attitudes or behavior or action, can can be revealed so that we can be free of it, Lord. And I ask that you will give us insight, even through this plague of frogs, and understanding why you did what you did, Lord, but more what you're doing in us right now. And I pray this in Jesus' most holy name. Amen. Amen. Hey, before I go any further, I just wanna shout out happy birthday to my son, Corey. Corey is 30 years old today. 
<laughs> Thanks, Les, Les says, wow. And I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> Happy birthday, son. Back to the frogs. Exodus chapter eight, the Egyptians valued frogs. You had to be aware of frogs living in the Nile Delta and throughout the region of Egypt And they appreciated their froggy friends. They truly did. In fact, I'll give you three quick ways that you can be aware of. Number one, they appreciated that frogs were debuggers. (laughs) They debugged the land. They protected crops. They kept insects down. So their value there was was huge in an area that that was humid and could tend to be moist and could tend to attract all kinds of mosquitoes and, and bugs, gnats of all kinds. Well, the frogs, they ate those. And so they kept them in check. So the numerous frogs in the land of Egypt were helpful. They were debuggers. They were also delicacies. (laughs) Frog legs, frog cakes, the occasional croquette. They were on the Egyptian menu, but no one, no one would have wanted live frogs in their ovens or lounging in their cereal bowls on a Saturday morning or worse, in their beds. Can you imagine? I mean, just try and put yourself in, in one of the bedrooms in Egypt at this time, and you finally get into bed, and you slip your feet down under the covers and right onto a cold, wet, slimy, wiggling lump. <laughs> and to make matters worse, the Egyptians didn't sleep in beds raised up off the floor like us. They slept on mats that would be down floor level, frogs hopping on them all night long, and imagine the croaking throughout the night, nonstop, just noise, noise, noise. But before the plague, frogs were debuggers, and frogs were delicacies, and frogs were deities. They were deities in Egypt. Remember, with every single plague, God is going after the false gods, taking them down one by one. Every plague. Every plague came for a multitude of reasons. First and foremost was the knowledge of Yahweh as God, that they may know that I am Yahweh, he says. Secondly, obviously, the plagues came for the deliverance of Israel to move and compel and motivate Pharaoh and the Egyptian people just to let them go. But also, the plagues were designed, I think then and now, to expose the impotence of the false gods of Egypt. Now, we already talked about one on Wednesday night. Several gods actually are being dealt with with the plague of frogs. Wednesday night, we looked at Happy, H-A-P-I, the androgynous god of the inundation of the Nile. That was the god that Pharaoh went down to the Nile every day to pray to as he took his bath and then worshiped Happy, the Nile god, Happy was an androgynous figure, a kind of gross idol. If you, if you look it up on Google, you can see examples of happy. Ugh. But often, happy as an idol would be shown holding a frog. And water poured out of the frog, the water of the Nile. So in their fountains in Egypt, they would have idols of happy with water coming out of the frog's mouth which was indicating the flow of the Nile River. Well, the first plague was the Nile turned to blood. A very unhappy event. And now, now with the plague of frogs, we see further revelation of happy's irrelevance 
before Yahweh. Could not control the Nile turning to blood. Could not now control the inundation of frogs as they came out upon the whole land. But it wasn't just happy. See, happy worked with a couple of toadies. They're all over the teaching this morning. You just gotta catch them as they come. Two other gods are being targeted here. One was Kanum. And Kanum, spelled K-H-N-U-M, was the frog-headed creator god. This is how the Egyptians viewed their creator. A man's body with a frog's head. And this frog-headed creator god was believed by the people to fashion human beings out of clay. He would make clay figures and then his consort would come along. Her name was Heket or Hecht, either way. And she was the fertility goddess. She had a frog's head on a woman's body. And it's just bizarre. The Egyptians believed that in Heket's nostrils was, was the breath of life. And so these clay figures that were created by Hanum, Hachet would come along and she would breathe life into them from her froggy nostrils and they would come to life and that's how people were made. Hachet was also known to assist in childbirth. Now listen to this. Between the plague of the Nile turning to blood and the plague of the frogs, it looks like God, at least in part, is severely judging Egypt for previously casting infants into the Nile. God is multifaceted in his righteousness and in his judgment. He doesn't miss anything. Things that we would let slide, let slip, even things we become aware of, maybe that our children do sometimes or our friends may do or ones that we know, we kind of let it slide. Ah, you know, that's, yeah, that's sure that's sin, but ah, I'm not gonna say anything, kind of let it go. God lets nothing slide. God is aware of everything and judges. He must judge every single thing in this world. Verse two is the first time we see the word used for plague here among the plagues. The word is used one time in Genesis, but this is the first time we see it in Exodus and among the plagues, and it's the word in verse two, smite, which can also be translated plague. I want you to understand, we talked about this Wednesday, that a plague is a smite, it's a blow. It's not just some kind of generic bad thing. It is a blow to a people when a plague comes. Plague is no gap in the Hebrew. A blow, a strike, an assault. This is God's assault on the false gods, on the false power, on the Pharaoh, on the rebellion, and on the lack of true belief in Egypt. This is a spiritual assault. Listen, spiritual assault happens all the time. You do not want to be on the receiving end when the assault is from the hand of God. Now, if you missed Wednesday's study, we learned that the plagues come in three sets of three. The first three, second three, third three, that's nine plagues, and then the tenth and final plague is the death of the firstborn. But in these three sets of three, it's fascinating because the first two of each set, warnings are given. Pharaoh, or Moses comes to Pharaoh and he warns him, and he comes to Pharaoh again. He warned him about the blood. He warns him about the frogs. And then the third one of each set, there is no warning. The plague just hits. Warning, warning, hit. And so that happens each one of these three times. And there are other similarities which you can think through and look at in the sets of three plagues. But the third blow comes without 
warning. And we are in the second now of the first set of three. Verse five, the Lord continues. He says, all right, verse five. Yeah, the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the streams, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. Note that, not just out of the Nile, but also out of the streams and over the pools. They came from everywhere. And they covered the land. This is interesting. The word frog in the Hebrew is sephardeah. Sephardeah. It's a, a combination of two Hebrew words. One we know, and that's safar. Safar means to depart or to, to depart early. Safar. The other word is never used anywhere else, and it's an unknown Hebrew word that they believe means swamp or marsh, so to depart early from the swamp (laughs) is the meaning of frog, or you might just say marsh jumper. These are those that depart and come out. Haaretz, Israel, Israel's news source, it's online, and there was an interesting article written somewhat recently by one of the journalists there, and the title of the article was frogs, Sephardea, Sephardea, which he said is a weird word for an unimpressive plague. A weird word for an unimpressive plague. And he goes into talking about the linguistics of the word and how strange a word it is in, in the Hebrew anyway and what it means. But what caught my eye was unimpressive plague. An unimpressive plague? I love frogs in the springtime. I really do. I hear them across the fence down at Gilmore's Pond. And the the sound of the croaking, it comes wafting up in the evenings and it's actually a very peaceful sound, Cheryl, and I love to hear it. Our windows are open anyway because, you know, the days are warmer and, and longer and we can hear the frogs down there. But I'll tell you what, I do not want to look down and see a frog staring up at me from my frosted mini wheats. Unimpressive plague. Thing is, you might not even notice if one was in your bowl of cereal. Get this, the Nile Delta toad is about an inch and a half. It's a tiny little frog, about the size of a mini wheat. (laughs) And Israelis have an interesting phrase for doing something you don't want to do. It's called livloat safardia, swallow a frog. Swallow a frog. In the Hebrew, so like if a kid is told, I, I, you know, by a parent, go vacuum the house. The kid would go, oh man, that's just like uh, Livloia, Livloa Sephardia. That's like swallowing a frog. I don't wanna do that. So in that Hebrew slang, they get it. You don't wanna swallow a frog. The common marsh frog, which is also all over Egypt, is only about five inches. So at biggest five inches, at smallest an inch and a half, it wasn't the size of the frogs, it was the quantity of them. It was the masses of them everywhere you looked. The Bible says they covered the land. You couldn't walk without squish. Frogs going up through your toes. Toads in your toes. I mean, ugh. But along with unimpressive, some people call this plague funny or harmless. And all I can say is they were not there. Neither was I. 
But listening to the biblical description, it was so bad, it caused Pharaoh to ask for prayer. It was so bad. Now, some come along, and with all the plagues, they try to downgrade them or or denigrate them. They're not that big a deal. They're not as bad as you might think. I mean, blood in the Nile, yeah, that's gross, but it only lasted a week, and then it went away. By the way, do you ever think about how it went away? Like, did fresh water just start to flow, and and over a week to 10 days to two or three to a month, it it finally just kind of washed out the blood all along? I mean, if you've seen blood, it's thick. It's not like Kool-Aid that just splashes away. It, It would be all over the the marshlands and the grasses and everything, it would seem like it would take a long time to, to clear out. Bible says it was seven days. So I really wonder if they woke up on the morning of the eighth day and there was no blood anywhere. That's awesome. You need to understand that the disappearance or the end of the plagues is as impressive as the beginning of the plagues. Some try to give natural explanations for all these plagues to strip them of the supernatural judgment, just to say, ah, you know, it was just the natural sequence of seasonal changes. One liberal commentator actually said that. It was just a season. It was a bad year for Egypt. You know, they they say the Nile, well, what really happened with the Nile turning to blood is it was in the inundation stage, and in the inundation stage, the red silt from the bottom of the Nile came up, and and the Nile looked red, looked like blood, but it really wasn't blood. But all that silt that killed the marine life, you know, the the frogs couldn't take it, so they hopped out of the Nile because the blood drove them out, and they came upon the land. Well, then as the frogs began to die all over the land, the gnats and the bugs came because, of course, they would come and, and be, you know, hanging out on the frogs and on the dead rotting flesh and then you know they brought with them disease which caused pestilence on the livestock well then as the livestock died of this pestilence the disease got on the humans and boils started appearing on all the human beings and and it was just a a a real problem for everybody and and then all of a sudden i don't know how you explain boils causing hail that doesn't make a whole lot of sense well it was just a hailstorm that just happened like we said Unlucky year for Egypt, and they try to explain it all away. How do you explain a river of blood so lethal to all marine life, yet preserving healthy hoppy frogs? Why weren't they killed along with all the marine life that was in the Nile? And note that the the frogs, according to the biblical record, did not exit the Nile during the seven days that it ran with blood. In fact, they didn't even exit immediately after the seven days. It wasn't until their coming was announced by Moses that the frogs began to hop out of the Nile at that point, now clear of the blood. None can explain why seven of the 10 plagues had literally no effect on the Hebrews of Goshen. We also talked about this midweek that three of them probably did. The first three plagues probably had impact in Goshen as well as the rest of the land. Why would God do that? To wake up his people, to say this is legit. You didn't believe me, you didn't believe Moses. Take a look right now and you decide if you're you're really ready to follow me. But the final seven, no impact on Goshen whatsoever. That makes no natural sense. Even the death of the firstborn throughout Egypt did not touch the Jews who, as we will see, spread the blood on the doorpost and the lintel. The Bible declares very clearly these were divine strikes upon Egypt. 
supernatural blows or assaults, if you will, delivered by the outstretched hand and the mighty arm of Yahweh, not unimpressive. Psalm 78, 43, he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the field of Zoan and turned their rivers to blood and their streams they could not drink. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs, get this, frogs which destroyed them. This was not funny to those dwelling in Egypt at the time. It was a massive destruction. But of course, you'll always find people who wanna give natural explanations for supernatural occurrences. You know why? 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Listen very carefully, brothers and sisters. The challenge to the church in this day is to spiritually appraise everything that's going on, not to appraise in the natural man. If you appraise in the natural man, you will miss what God is doing. If you appraise in the natural man, you will not comprehend and therefore you will miss the blessing of this season and what God is attempting, what he is doing among us in the church, in the world. The natural man is not gonna get it. Spiritual man, the spiritual woman will dial in and pray, Lord, what are you doing? How can we be aligned with what you're doing? So the natural is always gonna try to find a natural explanation. That's why Pharaoh called in his magicians, by the way. He, he knew. Pharaoh had to know. His magicians were a bunch of sleight-of-hand tricksters. You know, they, they weren't magic, so to speak. They were probably mostly con artists, but hey, they worked to his advantage because they kept religion alive among the people. And as Karl Marx said, religion is the opiate of the masses. I would agree with that, by the way. I think religion is an opiate. Faith in Jesus, that keeps you wide awake. But he calls in his magicians. And verse seven says, the magicians did the same thing with their secret arts, making frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Secret arts, you might jot this down. The word in the Hebrew for secret arts is latte. So the next time you're at Starbucks, pick up a cup of secret arts. Latte in the Hebrew, it means concealment. It means secrecy. And it, it, it describes something that's underhanded. Probably not supernatural. Now, it's possible. I won't deny that these tricks by the magicians, when they created some blood out of water themselves, and when they caused frogs to pop up out of certain places themselves, it could have been enchantments by a demonic power. Absolutely possible, especially at that time. Or, or they may have just been magicians' tricks designed to deceive. Either way, what a bunch of morons. What a bunch of complete blithering idiots. As we saw again midweek, all the magicians can do is add to the misery. They don't make it better. The Nile turns to blood and what do they do? Make more blood. You wanna be truly amazing? Turn the blood back to fresh water. They never could do that. They can't reverse the curse. Frogs fill the land. What do the magicians do? Invite more frogs. See, that's what sin does. 
Sin is always looking for the increase of more sin. Sin always wants to bring more pain, more heartache, more mess. Sin never backpedals. Sin never quiets down. Sin never washes out previous sin. It just adds to it. And so these magicians come along and they replicate, but they cannot remedy the situation. And by the way, after this second plague, it's the last time they'll work their charms. The plagues get too intense. They cannot counter them in any way, shape, or form. When the insects begin to swarm, verse 19 of chapter eight, they'll say, this is the finger of God. And when the boils emerge, and this cracks me up, in chapter nine, verse 11, they can't even stand. So they add to the misery twice. Then they say it's the finger of God. And finally, they can't even stand because the boils on their own bodies are so bad. My friends understand that the devil is in the details. This is what he does. Even for those who work for him, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. John 10, 10. That's what the devil does. He doesn't have anyone on his side because those who come to his side are gonna pay dearly for it. They will be stolen from, they will be killed, they will be destroyed, even as we see happening now to Pharaoh and his magicians. Jesus said, John 10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Why won't people come to Jesus for life? I pray that they may have it abundantly. That's, see, that's Jesus' desire for you and for me. Not loss not death, not destruction. And by the way, the life that is in Jesus will be proven in this plague before we're done this morning. I want us to consider what's going on here spiritually, to take a, a, a spiritual look, not at just the, the physical frogs hopping around covering the land of Egypt. We covered that in the first six verses very quickly. And then verse seven, here come the magicians adding to the misery, but there is a spiritual reaction. There's something God is doing and we see how man responds. And please listen closely to this. I think this is important for us this morning. Verse eight, then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, entreat Yahweh that he remove the frogs from me and from my people and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to Yahweh. Okay, first of all, it's a lie. He's not gonna let him go. He has no intention of letting him go, but he just wants this over. But it's interesting, this is now the first time that Pharaoh acknowledges both the existence and the power of Yahweh. Entreat Yahweh on my behalf. He even uses the right word. He says, entreat. And by the way, the word entreat is hatiru in the Hebrew. It means intercede. It means petition, pray for me, intercede for me, call out to Yahweh for me, Pharaoh says, and it's the right word, but it's the wrong heart. Because again, all Pharaoh wants is relief. That's all, he's not concerned about being apologetic. He doesn't confess his rebellion. He's not seeking God for salvation. He just wants it over. Ever pray that way? Lord, fix this mess that I've made. Make the bag go away. And Jesus, remove the consequences of my sin. 
We just want it over without dealing with what's really going on. Pharaoh, note this. I'll give you a few things to jot down. Are you note takers? Number one, Pharaoh asks for palliative prayer. Palliative prayer. It's not a phrase you'll see in the Bible because it's not a biblical idea. It's a natural man's idea. Palliative prayer. If you've ever dealt with terminal disease, you know palliative care is simply making a person pain-free and comfortable until they finally pass away. It's seeking comfort and relief in prayer, but not redemption. Palliative prayer is all about alleviation, but not sanctification. A quick fix rather than a true life change. Notice the typical response to palliative prayer. Pray for me, Pharaoh says. And then down in verse 15, when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart. I just want the pain to stop. And when it stops, I'm done. I just want to be soothed and comforted. And when we are, we're over. We don't need God anymore. Thank you. Thanks for the prayers. That is the natural man's way of praying. Palliative prayer. Just get me through the trouble. I just want relief. The word relief means a brief respite. It's revoca. Brief respite, a break. I just, I just make it stop. Just make it stop. It's all I really want. And quick palliative prayer, it doesn't change the heart. You could call palliative praying ibuprofen praying because that's what's going on. It's blocking the pain, but it's not dealing with the root issues. See, I know this. I, I, I've shared with you. Some of you know the, the heart stuff that I've had to deal with and, and what happens with me with this uh, paramyocarditis that I've dealt with a few times in my life now. When it hits, it's, it's a, an inflammation of either the pericardium or, and or the myocardium, and man, it's as painful as a heart attack. But as soon as I get some morphine, peace. And, and after that, High dose of ibuprofen. Now, ibuprofen has that shrinking effect. You know, it, it causes things to, to simmer down. And so that, that's part of the remedy for this, this problem that I've had is take high dose ibuprofen prescribed by the doctor and, and it brings an immediate relief to the pain and it causes a, a shrinking. So, so it brings down the swelling a bit, but, but it doesn't deal with the root issue. It doesn't deal with the real problem of the heart, and palliative prayer is just like that. I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray for relief. Oh God, comfort me. Oh God, relieve me from this distress. Absolutely pray those prayers for the soothing of body or soul or spirit, but the problem is when we pray for relief without responsibility. We don't look for the change that needs to come because if we don't pray for redemption, if we're not asking that God bring to the surface the root issues and help us deal with them, they will remain in us. Listen to this, James chapter five. If you have your Bible open before you in your lap there, turn over to James chapter five. I'm gonna take you two places real quickly because this is so important in our mentality of how we respond to or, or pray to the Lord. James chapter five, I know I say this every single time we go to the book of James, but it's actually Jacob. So Jacob chapter five, it's just easier to find because all your Bibles say James. James chapter five and verse 13. Now listen closely, a familiar passage to many of you. 
But note this, beginning in verse 13 of James 5, is there anyone among you suffering? He must pray. Now, if you stop right there, you say palliative prayer. Pray that God stops the suffering, keep going. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up and listen, if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. That's immediately brought right into this issue of prayer. It's not just about soothing the pain. It's about the sin that is underneath. Therefore, therefore, James writes, Jacob writes, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Then he says the effective prayer of the righteous man can accomplish much. The effective prayer of a righteous man. Is that the elders that are praying for the person? I don't think so. I think it's the person coming for prayer. The effective prayers of the righteous man. Well, well, who's the righteous man? It's not the one who's relieved of guilt or conscience. No, the righteous man is the one whose sins are forgiven him. Turn over to Psalm 32. Psalm 32, about the middle of your Bibles. Psalm 32, beginning in verse one. Understanding, we come for prayer. We call even for the elders to pray over us. Man, if there is sin in your life, be ready to confess it. Be ready to allow it, as we talked about in this season of plague, allow it to emerge. Let the sin come to the surface. Oh, I don't wanna be judged. You won't be. That's the beauty of, of confession. Is the sin rises to the top, it's prayed over, it's crushed, the root is dealt with, and, the, and the, the ailment can then be soothed, can then be relieved, because the root issue is taken care of. Psalm 32, verse one, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, that's the righteous man. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit... There is no deceit. That is, there's nothing hidden. It's all been brought to the surface. It's completely being honest with the root issues of my sin. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer, Selah, which means pause, think about it, hold it for a moment. What's going on here? When I'm holding on to my sin, when I'm sweeping it under the carpet, when I'm quiet about it, when I'm not dealing with it. But then, verse five, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave me the guilt of my sin. And then we get another Selah. Think about that. That's marvelous. So now it's not just, oh, pray for my relief. It's relieve me by restoring me from my sin. Save me from my sin. Wash me clean of my sin as I confess it to you. And then the relief comes that is lasting and eternal. That sin won't come back because that's been washed away. 
That's what God does. Back in the plague of the frogs, Pharaoh's prayer request is sadly typical of so many people. Relieve me, but require nothing of me. You know, when there are frogs in the kitchen, we need to recognize we were the ones who invited them in. We are responsible for their presence in the bedroom. We called them in by our sin. So it's more than just palliative prayer that's needed. It's penitent prayer. It's repentant prayer. It's openness and honesty before the Lord our God. And by the way, before brothers and sisters, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. One of the greatest lies propagated by the devil is that your sin is worse than mine or your sin is worse than theirs. Those church leaders, they don't understand my sin. How could I confess it to them? Because they've all probably done the same thing. Everybody sinned. Where do we think that some are better than others? That some are actually sinless or more sinless than others? It's not true. We have all blown it big time. We have all failed miserably. What did the Bible say? So bad that our throats are open graves. I'm not trying to depress anybody. I'm just saying, hey, it's a big boat of sin that we're all floating in. We all deal with sin. Therefore, we all are called to confess. And when we do, freedom comes. Freedom from the Lord. Grace from Jesus. And it should be freedom from one another as well because we were open and confessional with our sin. Pharaoh was not. Also notice before we even move on from this verse that this is parceled out prayer. It's not only palliative prayer, it's parceled out. You guys pray for me. Moses, Aaron, you guys pray for me. Not pray with me, pray for me. Call out to Yahweh, but you do it. Reminds me of Simon Magus. Talk about another magician in Samaria. Philip had gone down to Samaria. Things were booming. People were getting saved right and left. Peter and John hear about it up in Jerusalem. And so they end up going down to Samaria. And they show up and they begin laying hands on people and people are receiving the Holy Spirit. Simon the magician goes, whoa, that's awesome. Pulls Peter and John aside, says, hey, how much? How much will it cost for you to give me this power so I can lay hands on people and do some amazing things myself? And Peter says, your money perish with you. Strong response. Peter gets all over his case and says, you better right now repent, turn to the Lord and repent to him. And you know how Simon responded? The end of Acts chapter eight, round, round verse 24. Pray to the Lord for me yourselves. Parceled out prayer. You pray for me. You pray for me. Pharaoh could have, in this moment, prayed to Yahweh himself. There in his bedroom, surrounded by frogs, he could have dropped to his knees and prayed to the Lord right then and there. Had he owned his sin, were he responsible for what he caused, he could have asked for forgiveness and restoration and he could have prayed, I will, relieve your, I will release your people and it all would have ended right there. But he parceled out the prayer. I mention this because prayer is one of the best tests of a person's own spiritual condition. 
Not someone else praying for you, you praying for you and or for other people. Your prayer is the best test of your spiritual condition. How's it going? How is your prayer life, we like to say? You know, it's a funny phrase to me, your prayer life as if it's separate from your real life. It's just your life. Are you praying in your life? Are you praying in the morning? Are you praying through the day? Do you pray in the evening? When there are crises that hit, do you turn to the Lord? Whether things are good or bad, are you thankful to the Lord? Are you praising the Lord? Are you turning to him and talking to him? Listen carefully, because this quote, this is a Spurgeon quote, and it's a good one, but it's kind of deep. He said, there is a measure of faith which goes to increase a man's condemnation. Interesting, a kind of faith that increases my condemnation. Since he ought to know that if what he believes is true, then the proper thing would be to pray himself. Spurgeon said, Pharaoh had a condemning faith which contented itself with other men's prayers. See, that's like the demons who also believe and shudder. There is a level of faith, a level of belief. Pharaoh has come to it. He believes there's a Yahweh. He he can't deny it at this point. And so he says, all right, I acknowledge there's Yahweh. You pray to Yahweh, and he's content with someone else to do it. People will go to a pastor. They'll go to a shepherd, a spiritual leader for prayer, and that's fine. I mean, that that is part of why we're here. That's Les's entire job. So please keep coming to him, or we're going to have to let him go. (laughs) No, I mean, yeah, of course we want to pray. Of course come to a pastor or shepherd. Come to a ministry leader. Go to a brother or sister. But listen, don't go and ask them to pray for you. Go ask them to pray with you. We pray together. If you want more than temporary palliative relief, don't just parcel it out. Don't pass it off on another. Don't assume someone else's prayers are gonna be more effective for you. The effective prayer of a righteous man availeth much, meaning what? Meaning the righteous person has confessed and been freed of their sin before God. Now your prayer is effective. Now your prayer is life-changing. What I'm saying to you, dear fellowship, is you get real with God and you pray to him. And anytime you want, I would love to pray with you because I need you to pray with me. So that's the other dynamic of praying together. Our shepherds need you to pray with them as much as they would like to pray with you. I, as a pastor, shepherd, need you to pray with me and for me as much as I wanna pray with you and for you. We we do this together. We don't parcel it out. In Luke 18, verse one, we're told that Jesus was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. You can read the rest of the parable in Luke 18, but the point was Jesus' intention, pray always. Just keep praying. Don't lose heart. By the way, the more you pray, the less you're gonna lose heart because prayer is heartening. It lifts up. It's encouraging. The moment you turn to Father and know he's with you in it, That's where peace comes from. That's a whole lot more than just temporary relief. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, Paul says, pray without ceasing. Ephesians 6, 18, with all prayer and petitions, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Man, when I pray, whether it's for myself 
or, or even for or with others, for all the saints, what happens is I open up my heart to the redemptive, sanctifying work of God. He's working on my heart even when I'm not aware because I'm praying for someone else, but I am not parceling it out. And I'm not just seeking palliative relief. Brothers and sisters, when the frogs are in my bed, they are there to get me out of bed and on my knees before the Father. Verse eight, or sorry, verse nine. So Pharaoh calls Moses Aaron. He wants them to pray for him. So Moses said to Pharaoh, the honor is yours to tell me, when shall I entreat for you and your servants and your people that the frogs be destroyed from you and your houses that they may be left only in the Nile? Moses here does an amazing thing, very smart, very wise. He defers the timing of the relief to Pharaoh. No one can say this is by chance. No one can say, ah, it was a seasonal thing. This is when the frogs always go away. He said, Pharaoh, you tell me, when do you want the relief to come? He proves in this moment, proves to the skeptics that the power of Moses was not natural. It wasn't incidental. It wasn't random. It was directly from the Lord himself. So, in light of Pharaoh's palliative, parceled out prayer request, Moses prays what I would call a presuppositional prayer. Presuppositional. That is, when he says, you tell me when you want me to pray for this relief to come. It's in your hands. Moses presupposes the power of God. He's presumptuous to it. I almost said presumptuous prayer. Presumptuous carries a negative connotation to it as if you know he shouldn't have presumed upon the Lord. But he presupposes, he knows, he's convinced of the power of God. Not arrogantly, not foolishly. Moses isn't just out there saying, thus says the Lord because it makes him look good. No, no. He knows the will of God in this. He presupposes the power of God in his prayer, in his offer, because he knows the will of God. What does God say multiple times here? Back in chapter seven, verse five. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. God told Moses that more than once. He repeats it several times through this whole section that they will know that I am the Lord, I will stretch out my hand. This is my doing, this is my power. So Moses can freely pray you let me know, when do you want me to pray? Because he knew when I pray, God's gonna move. How do you know God's gonna move? Because he knew the will of God. Please don't miss that. This was a massive, massive froggy mess. But Moses wasn't out on a lily pad here. He was on solid ground when he made this offer to Pharaoh. Absolute assurance that Yahweh wants to show himself to be powerful in all Egypt by rescinding the plague, and I said this earlier, I wanna repeat it right now, don't forget, the removal of the plagues is just as powerful as the bringing of the plagues. Removing blood from the Nile, that would be a divine effort. Removing the frogs, stopping this plague of frogs, this was something Pharaoh's magicians could never do. But the key to such confident prayer, this presuppositional prayer of Moses, the key 
is not only knowing the power of God, it is knowing the will of God. When I know the will, I can speak on the power. When I understand the will, I can pray in the power to be spiritually aligned with God's intentions, God's purpose, and yes, God's timing. All for the sake of God's glory. Now you're praying in power. So Moses asked Pharaoh, when do you want the frogs to croak? Verse 10, he said, look at this, tomorrow. What? Tomorrow? How about today? (laughs) How about right now? How about immediately? We're all sick of froggy pudding. How about no more frogs? You know, when do you want, I'll get the honors yours. When do you want me to pray that the frogs, that you're relieved of the frogs? Now, let's, can we just drop and do it now? Pharaoh says, tomorrow. Number four, if you're taking notes, palliative prayer, parceled out prayer, both on Pharaoh's part, on Moses' part, a presuppositional prayer and the power of God. And now number four, postponed prayer. Pray tomorrow. Tomorrow's soon enough. Why wait? I sat on this one for a long time. In fact, I prayed about this one. Lord, why did Pharaoh wait? Why did Pharaoh put it off? And maybe it's because Pharaoh thinks Moses needs time to intercede and his God, Yahweh, needs some time to react and respond to such a massive mess. I mean, it's countrywide frogs everywhere. This is gonna take a bit of time, so tomorrow. I don't know. Maybe... Pharaoh wants to feel in control. I'll pray when I'm good and ready, or I'll have you pray when I'm good and ready. Maybe Pharaoh's still hoping they're gonna hop away on their own before the prayer. Eh, they'll take care of themselves. Maybe he likes them. He's just accustomed now to the frogs. Give me one more night with the frogs. Why would anyone put off salvation? That's something that still is hard to grasp or comprehend. And I was one who did. I, I, I mean, I get that people do. Why? Why do we put off Jesus? Maybe because you think your life is just too much of a mess for him to clean up. Maybe you're not ready to give up control. Maybe you're hoping things will just get better on their own. Or maybe you're just used to all the frogs in the kitchen. You're comfortable with the sin in your life. It's not always perfect, but these little green friends are always there, so it's just what I do. I'll get baptized after COVID-19 is over, you know, because there's still a few things (laughs) like to experience before I really give my, I, I'll, I'll tell you what, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna start getting serious about God when my, when my kids become school age and they need it. I've heard that one. Or this one, if there's really a rapture of the church, I'll wait and see, and if there is, I'll believe then. Postpone prayer. Psalm 95, verse seven, the Lord says, today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today. Do you realize that every day that prayer is postponed, the heart gets harder? 
The more we put off God, the harder the heart becomes. Hebrews 3.13 says, therefore encourage one another day after day as long as it is called today. Why? So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and it's rampant. See, the, lo- the devil loves a good detouring deceit. Tomorrow, tomorrow is soon enough and it's not just putting off prayer. It's putting off life, putting off hope, putting off peace. It's putting off Jesus. And by the way, Christians do this. We postpone prayer too. In a very casual Christianese way, we say, sure, I'll pray for you, and we don't. Someone says, hey, will you pray for me? Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll add you to my list, and we never look. Something I love that we've kind of learned to do around here, someone comes up to you on a Sunday or a Wednesday, and yeah, we're gonna be back together. I know I keep saying that, but it's because it's true. Someone comes up and says, hey, would you pray for me? I, I, I just need you to pray for me. Yeah, I'll pray for you, and off we go. No, no, what we've been doing, what we tend to do is right then lay a hand on the shoulder and pray. Don't wait, don't put it up, pray right now. Why are we putting off the prayer? Why pray tomorrow what you can pray today? Luke chapter nine, verse 52, Jesus said, follow me, but one said, Lord, permit me first to go bury my father. He said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Seems a little harsh, but let me ask you, is there some dead person in your family who's keeping you from trusting in the Lord? Let the dead bury their own dead. Let God deal with that. You follow me, Jesus says. Luke 9, 61 Another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but, but first, permit me to go say goodbye to those at home. Jesus said, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Postponing prayer, putting off prayer, putting off Jesus. Tomorrow's soon enough, Pharaoh says. And so Moses said, may it be according to your word, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God, Yahweh our God, but get this, he says that you may know, and you is singular, Pharaoh, that you may know there's no God like Yahweh. Why does Moses say that? I think because God is still going after Pharaoh's heart. See, this is the thing we don't talk about in Egypt. God wanted to save Egypt. The desire of God's heart was not only the deliverance of the Jewish people, it was the salvation of Egyptians, including Pharaoh himself, that you may know Yahweh is God. You gotta know Yahweh is God first, and faith comes as you believe and trust that Yahweh is God, and the hard heart softens, and off we go into salvation, and I am convinced that God wanted Pharaoh saved. It's Pharaoh who didn't want Pharaoh saved. So that you may know Verse 11, the frogs will depart, Moses says, from you and your houses and your servants and your people, and they will be left only in the Nile. And then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to Yahweh concerning the frogs which he had inflicted upon Pharaoh. The Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses, the courts, and the fields. Now hold on for a second. Note this, it's a stunning statement, verse 13. The Lord did according to the word of Moses. I mean, it's the other way around. 
You know, I do according to the word of the Lord. Moses did according to the word of the Lord, but here the Lord did according to the word of Moses. Why? Because he cried out the name of Yahweh. Jesus said, John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But note this, this is number five. For Moses, this was a painstaking prayer. A painstaking prayer. It's fascinating to me the way Moses prays. And you'll note that, again, in verse 12, Moses cried to the Lord. He cried to the Lord. Don't take that religiously. The word is sa'ak in the Hebrew, and it means to cry aloud and earnestly. It is prayer as with weeping. This is an emotionally charged word. It's not just he cried out loudly. It's that he cried to the Lord every single time this word is used in the book of Exodus, in the Shemot. It indicates a fervent, passionate, tearful intercession. We see it the first time in chapter five, verse 15, where the Hebrew slaves cried out to the Lord because of their bondage. We'll see it later in chapter 14, verse 15, where it says the people cry for rescue at the Red Sea as they're pinned in. They're crying out. They're they're weeping. They're terrified. This is an emotional word. We'll see it again in chapter 17, verse 4, where Moses cries out to the Lord because he fears that the people are about to stone him to death. These are the examples of the use of the word. And here, Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs. This is earnest, emotional, deeply compassionate prayer. And by the way, it reveals the gravity of the situation. As I said, we can make all kinds of frog jokes and puns. That's fun to do. This was no joke to Moses and to the people of Egypt. And note this. When Moses cried out in prayer, he was crying for both Israelite and Egyptian alike. He's praying for everybody. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 43, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Luke chapter six, verse 28, Jesus said, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who who mistreat you. Is that your initial reaction to someone who's opposed to you or against you to pray for them? That's what Moses is doing right right here And, and it's pretty remarkable. These are the people, this is the nation that was oppressing the Israelites and he cried out for them. I wanna, as we come to the end here, conclude with a question. And it's a question I was asked Another Christopher question. So Christopher, I hope you're paying attention. Why do we pray when God already knows what we're gonna ask for? For one thing, and I had this conversation with Christopher, that prayer is much more than pleadings and petitions and asking for stuff. It's much more than relief and rescue that prayer is relationship. You know, I said, Christopher, why do you talk to Judy? You know, when she already knows what you want, why do you ask her? She already knows. 
And we talked about it and got finally down to the point that, well, they talk because they're there together. They have a relationship as grandmother and son, and, and, and so they, they communicate together. That's prayer. It is all about the relationship. But get this, and I'm adding this, Christopher, to our conversation. We pray in relationship to the Lord because relationship changes us. It's a relationship that changes us. All relationships affect us, right? So my relationship with my kids, hopefully I'm having impact on their lives, but they're having impact on mine too. So there's a two-way street. There's, there's a change that's taking place. God is I am. He's absolutely perfect. He's unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? But I'm changed every time I go to him in prayer. My relationship with God, it alters me, it changes me. Pharaoh, in this situation, had no interest in a relationship with Yahweh. He did not want to become a Yahweh follower, and he had no interest in the kind of heart surgery that he needed. By contrast, Moses. Moses here, even at the age of 80, it's being radically reshaped and transformed as a man of God. Brothers and sisters, that's what God wants for us. That's why we're called upon to be people of prayer. Romans 8, 29, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. We're being changed even as we cry out to the Father so that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn, preeminent among many brethren, and these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. That's a process of change. As we cry out to the Lord, prayer is a relationship that changes us. And verse 14, so they piled them in heaps and the land became foul. Literally, the land stank. It's the same word that's used back in Exodus chapter five, verse 21, when the people are accusing Moses and Aaron of making them stink in Egypt, making them foul in Egypt. Now the land stinks. Now it's completely foul. The frogs everywhere just died. Moses prays, and on the morrow, every frog in Egypt, dead. And they begin to scoop them up and shovel them up in piles and heaps of sweltering, rotting, stinking frogs all over Egypt. Now remember this. Think about this. Frogs were a divine symbol of life and fertility in Egypt. And now they're piled in heaps. The frog-headed goddess Haket breathed life into the clay bodies of her mate, Khnum. And now the entire land is piled high with dead, rotting, stinking frogs. Why? Yahweh alone holds the power of life and death. And that's the message that's getting through now, even to Pharaoh. This God controls life and death. Revelation 1:17, Jesus said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Verse 15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, 
he hardened his heart and did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh didn't want a right heart, wasn't interested in redemption. He wanted quick relief from the consequences of sin. Forget about the heart. But as I've said now several times, if we don't deal with the consequence, if we only deal with the consequence, but we don't deal with the sin itself, we leave the root of sin intact so that it can grow again. And it will, you're gonna watch, and we're gonna talk about this next Sunday, you're gonna watch Pharaoh's heart get harder and harder and harder and harder. Continue to harden because the root issue is never dealt with. Just the consequence, just take away this plague, take away that plague, take away this problem, that problem. I don't wanna deal with it, it's uncomfortable, it hurts, it makes me cry. Take it away. But never dealing with the root issue causes the heart to just get harder and harder. See, with Jesus, it's never about just getting the frogs out of the kitchen. It's about healing the heart. There was a hymn written back in 1779 by John Newton. John Newton. Famous story, and I won't go into his right now, but the the hymn is called, Come, My Soul, Thy Suit Prepare. Come, My Soul, Thy Suit Prepare. This is a hymn of preparation to bring your heart before the Lord. And in the chorus, he says, with my burden, I begin. Lord, remove this load of sin. Let thy blood for sinners spilt. Set my conscience free from guilt. Set my conscience free from guilt. And Jesus said there were two men. Luke chapter 18, verse nine, who went up, into the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went to his home justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's penitent prayer. That's the right prayer. That's where the power comes. That's where the frogs get driven from the land. The blood gets washed out of the Nile. That's when things are made truly right. Not temporary relief, but redemptive life change. It's potent because it's not just relief from consequences. It's a relief that crushes the root of sin itself. Do you want real relief from guilt and from shame? Confess your sin. Start there. Invite the Lord into your heart to deal with the root issues, what's really taking place in you. What's causing the frogs in your life or the blood in your rivers? What's causing the turmoil around you? What is it? There's a root issue. Invite the Lord into your heart to deal with that. Confess to him and confess your deep need for Jesus and you won't just be relieved, you'll be redeemed. And Jesus, I pray this for myself right now. I just ask for redemption to continue. 
I'm a saved man. I am so thankful for my salvation. I walk, Lord, in the joy of my salvation, but I understand there are big issues yet in my life. There are frogs still in the kitchen, and I'm asking you, Lord, to forgive me of my sin to clean it out, to bring redemption first that relief, true relief can follow, eternal, everlasting relief, Lord. I pray this for my brothers and sisters. I know among those listening this morning, there, there are some who are suffering the consequences of sin, and I'm asking, Lord, with grace and compassion, don't just remove the consequences. Deal with the sin. Dig into our hearts, Lord. Bring out of us the ugliness, the frogs in this season. Bring them to the surface. Show us, Father, our unrighteousness before you that we might be washed clean by you. And I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would work your perfect and your perfecting work in our lives. Father, if there's anyone listening who's never given their life to you, I pray for the conviction not to wait until tomorrow, but this morning to pray for salvation. If that's you, I invite you to pray with me right now. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I've made a mess of things in my life and I'm asking you to forgive me. I believe that you are the one who was living and then you died on the cross and then you rose to life again. I believe you took my place. And so I come to you asking you now to wash clean my sin and to call me as servant for I want you to be my Lord and my Savior today and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.